There was a story in the eighth chapter of John's gospel that if you grew up in the church, you were definitely familiar with. It's a story about a woman who was being used as a pawn in powerful men's games. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were important men in Jerusalem. And in this story, they were the powerful lobbyists who used manipulation and trickery to try to get their way. Often, when religion and political power become bedfellows, this is the case. And this story is a story about power. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees bring a woman who they say was caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. And I'm going to point out the obvious, that in order for this woman to have been caught in the act of adultery, she would have had to have been caught with a man. But for whatever reason, <clears throat> patriarchy, this man gets a pass in the story and the woman is brought in front of Jesus alone. They drag this woman in front of Jesus, in front of the crowd gathered around Jesus, and they begin to tell Jesus that the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman as this. They conclude by asking Jesus what he thinks they should do. Let us pause for a second. Let us not skip over the violence of this passage. Stoning someone was a brutal and horrific way of killing someone. I never understood how brutal it was until I watched the movie The Stoning of Sariah M. And if you have a weak stomach, I would suggest you actually skip the movie. But it's a movie about a woman in Iran who was falsely accused of adultery by her husband in order for her husband to be able to marry somebody else. And she was stoned to death because of this accusation. They would bury the person in the ground so only their chest and head were sticking out. Then they would take baseball-sized rocks and throw them at the person one at a time each person lining up to take their turn throwing a rock at the condemned person's skull like a carnival game. This would continue until the person was obviously dead, battered beyond recognition. And then if that wasn't bad enough, they would leave the person's body partially buried and exposed to be eaten by the wild dogs and the birds. This is what stoning entailed. This is what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are bringing this woman to Jesus for. Now, they didn't come to Jesus out of deference, out of respect for Jesus, but rather to trick Jesus. You see, because in their minds, this scheme only had two ways it could play out. Either Jesus would condemn the woman to death in accordance to the laws of Moses, which at this time was illegal to do because capital punishment could only be sentenced and delivered by the Roman Empire in the time of Jesus. So if Jesus condemned this woman to death, he would be also signing his own death warrant at the hands of Rome. The second option was that Jesus would let this woman go free and in doing so deny the law of Moses, which the teachers of the law thought would turn the crowds that had come to adore Jesus against him, leaving him open to be assassinated in secret by those in power. These were the only two options that the rulers and teachers imagined. But Jesus always does the unexpected thing, the thing that nobody could see coming. Jesus bends down and begins to write in the dust with his finger. And he doesn't respond at all to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He writes with his fingers in the dust. After a moment, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law continue to badger Jesus for an answer. Tell us what we should do. We demand an answer. And Jesus stands up straight and he says, let he, remember, this is a crowd of men gathered around a woman wanting to kill her. Let he who was without sin cast the first stone. Then he bends back down and continues to write in the dust. 
All of those who heard these words began to drop their rocks and walk away. First the older men, then the younger men, until nobody was left except Jesus and the woman who was accused of being caught in adultery. What did Jesus write in the dust that day that made the bloodthirsty crowd dissipate? Maybe Jesus wrote down their sins. That is the way that I've always heard that story taught. Maybe he wrote down a passage from the prophets about mercy. There's a verse found in the prophet Jeremiah's writings. It says this, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Maybe he bent down and began to write their names in the dust. But the result was that all of the woman's accusers scurried away. Jesus stands back up, and I imagine him helping the woman to her feet. Once standing, he asks her, Where are those who condemn you? Does anyone condemn you? The woman responds after looking around in disbelief, No one, sir. And with that, Jesus tells her that neither does he condemn her. And he gives her some parting words, Go now and leave your life of sin. This is a fascinating story for so many reasons. But the thing that stands out to me in this passage is that the woman accused of adultery doesn't speak until she says the words, no one has condemned me. This is the first century Palestine. During this time, the Jewish people held strictly to the Torah or what this passage calls the law of Moses, right? In the law of Moses, it says that in order for a person to be condemned, it must be on the testimony of two or three men. Women were not allowed to testify. This woman accused of adultery could not even testify in her own defense. We are left to take the word of men who just so happen to have forgotten the woman's male counterpart in the crime. And as the saying goes, it takes two to tango, right? At no point in time do the men in the story have the intention of letting this woman speak. This is a game of power and privilege. And this woman accused of adultery is a pawn used to lay a trap. This is a story of privilege. This is a story about male privilege in a world that is built on patriarchy. Or in the words of James Brown, this is a man's world. It is the men who define who is sinful, who must account for sin, who gets condemned of sin. This woman was said to be caught in the very act of adultery. So unless they redefined adultery to being by oneself, it meant that she had a partner in crime that was caught with her. But in this society of male privilege, this man escapes accusations, social shame, and possible death. But Jesus' presence becomes this woman's defense. Jesus' presence gives voice and affirms those who are dispossessed of power and privilege. Jesus' presence amplifies her story, amplifies their stories. Jesus' presence liberates those caught in systems of oppression. When I was preparing this message, I asked Megan for her thoughts, and she posed a great question. What makes you worthy of mercy and justice? And the answer was simply your humanity. The fact that you are holy and holy created in the image of God. Jesus in this story affirms this woman's humanity, dignifies it with mercy and justice. I don't know if the woman in the story was guilty or not, but I do know is that at no point in the story does Jesus accuse her. At no point in the story does she confess to the accusations. So is this story about sin and forgiveness? I think it depends on how you define sin. If sin is individual moral failings, 
which is the way that many of us have been taught to think about sin, then this story actually isn't about sin and forgiveness. But if sin is actually about the fracturing of relationships, about the breaking apart of community, which is the way I think the Torah would describe it, then yes, this story is about sin and forgiveness. This woman's relationship with her community and possibly her husband have been broken. The power games that these men are playing with her life are breaking the community apart. And Jesus' presence in the middle of all these things brings restoration, or at least the hope of restoration in this tragic story. And I think this story points to a greater reality. We are all created in the image of God, but we are also called to be shaped in the image of Jesus. That is the goal. We are created in the image of God, and nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that that image is broken or rescinded. But our goal, our trajectory, is to be shaped in the image of Jesus. And in this story, to be shaped in the image of Jesus begs the question, does your presence condemn or liberate people caught in sin?